Hey everyone, and welcome to the OS Training Podcast. I'm Steve Burge, and in this week's episode, I'm talking with Becca Rice from Skyverge. Skyverge are well known for all the different WooCommerce plugins they sell. They are the best-selling plugin developer on WooCommerce.com, and they have a WooCommerce blog called Sell with WP, full of WooCommerce e-commerce advice. They also sell Shopify plugins, and they have an online SaaS service called Jilt, which sends abandoned cover emails. They are deep inside e-commerce. And for that reason, we ended up talking at a really interesting time. We talked on the actual day that the GDPR law launched. And we spent a big portion of this week's podcast talking about the GDPR. Now, this isn't your normal partially informed conversation after reading a few blog posts about the law or well, it is on my end at least, but not on Becker's, because Becker and the Skyverge team sat down with a lawyer and really dug deep and understood exactly what the GDPR means to them and their e-commerce products. So if you sell online, I think you'll find this week's podcast really interesting. Hey, Becca, welcome to the Always Training Podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Steve, for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to the opportunity to chat today. Well, I need to start with an apology. I pinged you a little while ago about joining the podcast, and I didn't realize that I would probably schedule this for the worst day in many years for an e-commerce person. It's yes. GDPR day today. Yes, GDPR apocalypse, which it's been an absolutely crazy week. But fortunately, today we're at the tail end of it, I hope. So, so for those of you that don't know, Becca, you work for Skyverge, which is basically a, a big e-commerce focused company. You do some WooCommerce, you do some Shopify, some easy digital downloads, you're an e-commerce company? Yeah, yeah. So I don't. I guess we do sort of qualify as bigger these days. Uh, we're at, at 20 people and we've worked with both Woo and Shopify for about five years now. And we've worked with EDD for about two years. So I saw something you posted on a WordPress-focused Slack chat that your whole development team was basically GDPR-focused at the moment. How complex, how involved has it been to update all your WordPress plugins and Shopify plugins to get ready for this? It's been a very long process for sure. So uh, with our WooCommerce plugins, it wasn't actually too bad because WordPress core as well as uh, WooCommerce gave us a lot of tools to work with, which was fantastic. So a lot of the work that we were doing there was, uh, you know, hooking into the core personal data ratio requests, export requests, and just making sure that our plugins were you know, adding things were necessary there. So that process was actually pretty straightforward. It was just a lot of testing on our end, you know, user testing, just to make sure everything was working as expected. So the biggest problem for us, well, not problem, the biggest challenge was Jilt because we're sending lifecycle emails to customers. And so that process was much more involved and it's actually what took the majority of the time. So yesterday we had sort of all hands with our US-based development team, just, you know, going through user testing and final use cases and making sure that everything was working exactly as expected before launch. So it's been a long week of testing and, and revisions. And I'm glad that, you know, we have a lot of tools ready for people. So is this anything that you're familiar with? Do you have any kind of a legal background at all? Does anyone on your team have a legal background or is this all just an enormous learning curve? for you and your team? Yeah, so we do we do not and we don't have, you know, like in-house legal counsel or anything. You know, we're not we're not hundreds of, of, of people at our company, right? So what we did is is hired a law firm that was sort of focused on GDPR. We actually got the recommendation from Wildbit, who builds on Postmark. They're also a Pennsylvania-based company. So we fortunately got a great recommendation from their team. And we worked with an attorney to basically A, make sure that Jilt itself was compliant 
with the GDPR because it's important for us, you know, having customers in the EU that we were meeting those regulations. But then B, to we also worked with that attorney in that firm to say, okay, now that we know how we're going to be compliant, we have merchants that need to be compliant as well. And how can we help them with that process? Which was funny for, for our lawyer because they said, well, you don't really need to do that. You know, it's their responsibility, but that's not good business for us, right? We want to make sure that we're giving people tools. So we then actually completed a GDPR analysis using sample merchant information. And so walked through that process from the perspective of a merchant to understand what their compliance burden was and how our tools fit into that. And then built that into our tools to make it easier for merchants to comply as well. So you took this super seriously. Most of the developers that I've been talking with are basically in the, the situation where they're looking at other people's privacy policies going, hmm, that looks like some good wording, copy, paste, <laughs> copy, paste. And they're basically just going around other people's privacy policies and borrowing big chunks of it for their own privacy policy. But you actually went to get an outside law firm and took this, approached it with a great deal of rigor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm 100% a fan of borrowing good things where you find them, right? And for us, our privacy policy had actually started as something that Automatic had open sourced. They had open sourced a lot of their policies. But we took that, pretty much have rewritten it now at this point for ourselves. And so we did do that with the legal team we hired because we felt that we didn't have a good enough understanding of, of what we were doing there to ensure that we were complying, right? Because it's important to us that, you know, these regulations, I think, are good re regulations uh, for the most part. And they really help protect users and consumers. But there's also a, an, a tremendous amount of ambiguity around them. And that made it very difficult to understand what our own compliance burden was, and especially for the merchants we're trying to help, you know, because it's a small business. This is a huge responsibility and a huge burden on you. And I know that it cost us a lot of money and a lot of time to figure out. And I can't imagine trying to do that as a solo entrepreneur, right? And so we're in a position where we had to do it anyway. So taking it kind of just the extra mile made it that much better for our customers. So it felt like it was a really worthwhile investment for us. And on top of that, being an email marketing company, you know, it was kind of important for us given that a lot of the regulation focused on that. Yeah, we do a a little bit of e-commerce, a little bit of data collection in some of the products and software that we sell outside of OS training. And I've got to be honest, we've been a little bit more reactive compared to you. We've kind of taken the approach that these laws are very vague and we've been waiting to see what the customer requests are, what the customer feedback is, and we've started to implement some small things. But it's a, it's a minefield trying to <laughs> trying to get ahead of things and predict what the impact of the law is going to be and how your software can get ready for it. Oh, it's been it's been huge, yeah. And I think so. One of the things that was very helpful for us was that you have all the regulations in the GDPR that outline you know lawful bases for data processing, right? And there are six of them. Uh, a lot of people have focused on consent just because I think it's the easiest to understand. And so I think there's been a lot of misinformation around that as to like, well, if you're going to send any marketing messages or do anything with your customers or process any data, you need consent. And that's not true. And in fact, it's not necessarily better than the other five reasons for data processing, right? So for us, we knew that given we were sending emails, that was going to be very important to understand. And we really wanted to dig into that with someone, you know, knowledgeable about this regulation. So the GDPR and PECR, which is becoming e-privacy in the EU, actually ends up dictating how data collection should be done. And that was a sort of a guiding star for us as to, okay, if you're going to send emails on the you know legitimate interest basis, what do you need for that versus when do you need consent? And so I'm happy that we went through that process because now we're trying to you know help educate merchants as to what they should be doing in their own stores. Okay, so you have the specific example with the jilt of 
sending recovered, what's the phrase I'm looking for? You're sending emails for people that abandon the shopping cart, trying right. to do the recovery. And in that case, your lawyer's opinion was that that's actually a legitimate interest that someone had signaled perhaps that they were really interested in buying. They entered their email, they entered their name perhaps, and that's a legitimate business interest to collect that information? Yeah, and that's actually an instance that's outlined pretty clearly in the PECR, which is you know a sister piece of legislation, that the intent to buy, so long as you give someone notice as their data is being collected and the ability to opt out, it's perfectly legal to send them information based on that. And so as we went through this process, that was the biggest question for us, right? You know, does this fit legitimate interest, which is amazingly vague and seems like everything you do could be qualified as legitimate interest, right? Or does it need consent as the legal basis for processing? And for us, it didn't really matter either way what came out of that, right? Because we were just going to build the tools that were necessary. You know, if consent was necessary, we were going to build that. But interestingly enough, our advise, advice path from the legal team was no, consent would actually be worse in terms of the basis for processing in this case. So it was really interesting to go through the process. And I think that it gave us a lot of clarity as to what legitimate interest is. But to your point about being reactive, I think in some cases we will still have to continue to be reactive because I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of litigation around the legitimate interest basis for data processing and the tests you need to pass to meet that. It almost reminds me a little bit of the discussion about the the GPL laws, that they were vague enough and there were just enough loopholes that till there are actually some test cases, which there really still haven't been with the GPL laws, that a lot of it was open to interpretation and you could have a legitimate argument from both sides. I know the legitimate business interest has been one of the loopholes that companies like Facebook have been trying to use to justify the data they collect. But I can see your point of view with the abandoned cart. I know at least, well, have you ever met Oliver Carfis, who's been on the podcast before? He's gone to the WooConf with you. He does a, a French language website based on WooConf. Right. So I know Oliver, but we've not had the pleasure of meeting yet. Oh, okay. Well, I was talking with him this morning and he was really interested in hearing your point of view on this because he said this week he had turned off his abandoned cart setup, which was earning him about $500 a month because he was waiting to understand the legal implications better. And he was, I think you have good news for him. He said he'd oh, listen yeah. into the podcast. That's a, quite a bit of cash that he'd be leaving on the table by turning this off. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I think that a lot of merchants have been in the same position. And so we've had people who have done the exact same thing with Jill and say, well, I'm not sure I can do this. And, you know, early in the month, we weren't necessarily sure either because we were trying to say, okay, well, what tools do we need to build? You know, can people still do this? Do they need consent? Or is it legitimate interest? You know, what do we need for people to understand this? And so I was very happy to go through that process with the lawyer that we had hired to learn that because even if consent was the basis for processing, you know, we can certainly add that in, right? but we have a path forward with it. And to use legitimate interest then as a business owner, you just need to complete a legitimate interest analysis, which is asking you know, a few questions for yourself. What am I processing? What's the necessity of this, right? So you know, do I need to, to capture this information or not? And then am I balancing my customer's rights with my need to process this data? And so if you pass that legitimate interest analysis, then it can be used on that basis for data processing. And so for our merchants, we've actually completed a sample analysis that we've shared with some of them already to implement their own. And from my fairly limited understanding, actually doing the analysis and thinking about it carefully is a help towards being compliant. The part of being non-compliant is that 
you don't even bother to think about it. But if you actually sit and document your processes and your thinking and your justification, you'd have a better case for complying with the law. Oh, you exactly have a, a much better uh, legal standing, right? And a lot of it's common sense, to be honest, right? It's, it's thinking, you know, am I doing the right thing here? And trying to do right by my customers. And, you know, certainly marketing isn't, to your customers is not a bad thing. And as long as you're doing it in a way that is in the interest of your business. So, for example, if I sent, you know, three to five recovery emails within a week, that's reasonable, right? But if I were to send, you know, 12 emails over the course of 45 days, that's not reasonable. And so that's not within our best practices. And so you can't really justify that with a legitimate interest analysis. But to your point, if you think about it and, you know, understand what you're doing and, and can justify it, then that passes uh, legitimate interest analysis. And then you write that up and, and that becomes part of your documentation. Okay, so the solution you came up with uh, was, correct me if I'm wrong, actually putting a little line of text under the email box or mm-hmm. allowing the the users the ability to have a line of text under the email box saying, we will save this email for, I'm not, I forget the exact wording, we will save this email and then have an opt-out button if people right. want to opt out of that. Exactly. So for notice specifically, so when you're processing on the basis of legitimate interest, you provide notice with an opt-out when data is initially connected or collected, rather, excuse me. So for our add to cart popovers and our checkout form, we add that line of code about notice that says, you know, your email and cart are saved, so we can send you uh, email reminders about this order, or you can say no thanks. And if they say no thanks, then we don't process any of that data. And so that's not sent to Jilt, it's just ignored. Uh, Or if some data was already sent, and then they click no thanks, then we push a request to Jill to say don't process this any further. So we found that for the people who have then used our sample legitimate interest analysis, they're pretty happy with that. But a lot of it comes down to, you know, just pay attention to what emails you're sending and what you're doing with those emails and be reasonable, right? You know, a lot of it, I think, is what people were already doing anyway, right, is don't spam people, don't send unwanted emails, and, and don't be overbearing and make sure people can opt out. And I think that in that respect, I think GDPR, the GDPR has been great for clarifying that and making sure people are following best practices. But for people who were already doing that, I don't think much changes. Well, let me pivot slightly. You've been knee deep in the GDPR for weeks now. How did you end up here? How did you end up working for a company which is entirely e-commerce focused with WooCommerce and Shopify elements? You're based in Pennsylvania, is that right? Yes, I am currently a little bit outside of Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Yeah, my um, my wife and her side of the family are all from up there, just outside the north eastern Philadelphia suburbs. Mm, so I'm just west. So we're in a little bit different areas, but you know, I, I've grown up around this area. I uh, have traveled a lot, but you know, recently returned to it. So I've been pretty happy to be back home. Oh yeah, I was doing some background research, as I like to do for everyone that comes on the podcast. And from what I saw, you actually jumped in an RV, jumped in a bus, and spent some time <laughs> working and traveling around the U.S. I did, yeah. So to tie this kind of back to your first question, I had been a high school teacher for four years and was working with Max, who's co-founder of Skyverge, and also my husband. And he needed help doing technical documentation. He said, you know, you're a teacher. Teach people how to, how to use the software. And it ended up being that I was working, you know, two full-time jobs and coaching softball as well. And it got untenable. And so I said, either you need to hire someone to do this or, you know, we need to hire me to do this. And so the ability to travel at that point was back of mind as something that, you know, if we made this move that was very risky to have both of us working in a startup, essentially, we might have the opportunity to do this and to work remotely and to use that to see more of the country. And so a few years later, we got to the point where we were comfortable. We felt that we were good remote workers because you're not good at it at first. 
right? It takes practice to learn how to be productive, uh, especially when you're on the move. Uh, and then spend a little over a year just city hopping, staying a month in a place and moving to the next city, which was a wonderful experience and one that, you know, we were, we were very lucky to have had uh, given what we do. Oh, okay. So at that point, you guys were not quite the founders, but kind of employee number one. It was a fairly small company. You had quite a lot of freedom to jump in a bus and, and work without a an almost constant deluge of the kinds of things you get when the company is busier. Yeah. So when we did that, the company had been co-founded by Max and Justin. And with me being employee number one, we were, were super busy in those early days, you know, and, and you're putting in all that elbow grease that happens when you're working with a, a you know, nascent company. But at that point, we had, I think, seven people in some. And it was finally at the point where when you're going to hire someone, you're not doing like three jobs, right? It's, it's that you have some more bandwidth. So it was a perfect opportunity then to spend that time traveling while there were other people to share the load when you took time off. And then we also were at a point where we knew how to be productive if we were on the road or if we were going to new cities and what we needed to be productive. Like, for example, I had a hard shell suitcase where I brought my monitors with me everywhere we went just so that we could set up and have a workspace in every place we were in, knowing that that was really important for me to be productive. Oh, okay. So this is a training podcast and all our team are trainers. So trainers and ex-teachers as well. So I've got to ask, you guys who were there at the beginning of Skyverge are all ex-teachers as well? No, entirely different backgrounds for everybody, which has been really cool. So I came from teaching high school. Max had come from being an IT manager and also managing an e-commerce site for a pharmaceutical company. Justin had been a freelance software developer. And then a lot of our early employees were from different backgrounds. So people who would work at large companies, like uh, someone who was at Mad Mimi, who was then acquired by GoDaddy, right? Or people who are working solo, freelancing, doing you know content marketing or web development or different stuff. So we had a lot of different backgrounds. Nowadays, with 20 people, there are a couple other people who have done some teaching. So one of our developers was working at a learning to, you know, learning to code school. And uh, that experience was really cool because coming into our team then uh, had a lot of experience to share in mentoring people, which has been something that I've, I've really enjoyed sharing with our developers too, is you know how to mentor people, how to give that feedback, how to structure tasks so that people can learn as they're doing things. And I think that's been a really positive contribution to have people who understand teaching on the team to be able to help our whole development team learn and grow as we do projects. Okay, so you, the skills you had as a high school teacher dealing with some unruly kids are almost <laughs> directly applicable to dealing with some unruly developers? Uh, I wouldn't say any of our developers are unruly. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're pretty amazing. You know, we have, we have a lot of great people, but the ability to scaffold learning and to be able to set people up for success, right, is a skill I feel like translates to any job. And, you know, I was in a very fortunate position to do that, as well as building culture, right, as a teacher. There was an amazing book I read one, my first year called The First Days of School by Harry and Rosemary Wong. And that really influenced how we build culture at our company, which talks about focusing on, you know, the things that you do when people first come in, in their first day of school. And that translates really well to when people start with you and they're onboarding with your business. Yeah, if you have a class of 30 students, it's almost like a team building exercise, right? Um, exactly. You need to, to get them working together, at least happy with each other to get them on the same page. It's not as if you're teaching 30 kids individually. They, they act as some kind of um, blob almost um, that they they react off each other they vibe with each other the better their neighbor does the better they do most likely right and then you know those things that you teach in school right teaching you know collaboration and how to work effectively together right even if you have great developers those are skills that not everybody has used before right and so i think that that i was really fortunate to have had that background and been able to see areas where that translated to team building 
And I think it really benefited us to the point where we do have a strong culture and that every new person we bring in, you know, contributes positively to that as well. So do you have that defined? Is it a little Skyverge handbook or is it something that's just grown up organically by hiring the right people and keeping them in the right environment? Yeah, it's it's both, right? So it's making sure that when you hire people, you know, you're hiring people that align with a core set of values and purpose. And so we do have that defined internally as to, you know, what is what is our core purpose as a company? And for us, that's leveling the playing field for e-commerce growth. So taking, you know, enterprise level tools uh, or things that would be inaccessible to small businesses and medium-sized businesses and making it accessible to them so that they have access to the same things that other people have. And that's supported by a set of core values and a set of guiding principles. And so when we're hiring or doing performance assessment, you know, we, we benchmark everything against those parts of our culture. So those kind of early decisions probably lead you towards something like WooCommerce and Shopify <laughs> rather than something like Magento or Demandware or something which is which might lead you to be chasing big enterprise dollars. Uh, Skyverge are very focused on small businesses and giving them really cool tools. Yeah, I think that you know working with something like Magento isn't out of out of the realm of possibility for us, right? But I think that sort of devotion to you know helping entrepreneurship, right, and helping people that are working in small to medium sized businesses. You know, our typical merchant is ten million dollars a year and under, right? We're not working with companies that are pulling in a hundred million dollars. We do on occasion. But, you know, the, the, our bread and butter are people who have started businesses, right? And so I think that has driven a lot of what we do and why we were sort of always attracted to WordPress and why we got our start there, right? Because it gives everybody the ability to set up a website. And with WooCommerce, you know, pretty much anybody can have the ability to set up a store. And Shopify has similar roots in that they, they make getting started easier because it's all an all-in-one package. But WooCommerce really gives you, you know, flexibility and customization and data ownership. So there are things that we liked about both. And why we still focus with, you know, making sure that smaller merchants have tools they need, but also making sure that larger merchants have distractions cleared, right? And they can take their businesses to the next level. So it's not out of the, the question for us to work with larger companies as we as we grow, but we want to make sure that we can take tools that are available to Amazon and Nike and these huge brands, and we want to try to bring them to every merchant that we can. So on the WooCommerce side, you're an e-commerce company, but the way WooCommerce.com works is you don't actually get to do an e-commerce yourself, right? Everything actually runs through the WooCommerce.com website. You actually make the sales through their system and uh, you put your documentation on their site and does the support run off their site as well? Is It It seems almost like the, the Apple App Store. Is that how it works? It's pretty similar. So there is a revenue share and they handle transaction processing for you. And, you know, obviously they're marketing to their huge network of customers for you. And then we're handling, you know, all development updates, support. So when you set, submit, you know, an email through your account at WooCommerce.com, that's coming directly to our team. It's not quite similar to the App Store, I think, just because it is, you know, it's all open source software, right? But yes, it's it's very much a, um, a system in which we're not selling directly, which is something that a lot of our team members do have experience doing, which is really useful. So, for example, one of our team members has a sister who runs a WooCommerce store. And so it's been really cool to have those those people who are very close to us doing direct selling and people on our team who have done direct selling. I worked in a warehouse that was processing e-commerce orders when I was in college. Max, one of our co-founders, you know, was running his own e-commerce store for a merchant doing between 500000 and a million dollars a year through WooCommerce, right? So those experiences, I think, have been really valuable, but we're not selling directly ourselves these days anymore. So you have a, 
a really big foot in WooCommerce. I think you claim to be the biggest WooCommerce partner out there. On WooCommerce.com, uh, yeah. So we have over 50 premium extensions there. I think it probably makes up about 15 to 20% or so of that marketplace. And you've got a, a foot in the Shopify world as well? We do. So we've, we've built a lot of Shopify apps in the past. We've really focused a lot of our efforts on Jilt recently. So not as much on other Shopify apps we've built. And we've actually been in the process of finding a good home for those apps with another developer. But we've worked really extensively with you know both of those platforms for a long time, which has been given, you know, given us so many different development experiences. And then we've also worked with EVD for a fair bit as well. Oh, okay. So I've met you in uh, WordCamp Miami and knew some of the products through Skyverge. But walking down to your booth in WordCamp Miami, it was changed over and Jilt was the banner product. Jilt was what you were there to advertise. It's a, a SaaS service, which is able to support multiple platforms. Is that where you see the future? Is is the future towards more towards Shopify, more towards WooCommerce? Are you going to be adding Magento? What, what are you looking towards with the future for Jilt? Right. So Jilt has definitely become a huge focus for our company. And, you know, we have our entire team that was working on Shopify apps is really devoted to Jilt. And then our, our PHP team that works in WordPress, you know, also works on our Jilt integration plugins. So Jilt is rapidly becoming one of our biggest products and most popular products. That's not to say that our WooCommerce plugins would you know, ever not be a focus, right? We have a lot of big plugins like memberships and our payment gateways that get a lot of love and attention. But Jilt has shown that it's, it's really promising and we're trying to focus and invest heavily in it. Uh, so the majority of its customer base has been in Shopify, I think just because it got its start there. It was a Shopify only app for a long time. And we still get a lot of Shopify signups because of the fact that that app store is really accessible for people and makes it really easy to install and try apps. But the goal for Jilt is to definitely continue to grow in all the platforms it's in, in Shopify, in Woo, in easy digital downloads. And when we get to a point where we're really confident in its position in those platforms, we may look to expand elsewhere, you know, be that Magento or Big Commerce or, or something else. But for right now, we're really focused on the growth of Jilt and in those platforms it's in already. Okay, so at the moment, Jilt is largely focused on that email recovery feature that we talked about. Mm -hmm. But from talking with you, it sounds as if you're moving more towards a, a big vision of lifecycle emails for customers. If someone moves onto a subscription, you might be able to send them follow-up emails. You're going to move away from simply focusing on the cart to a broader customer experience? Yeah, exactly. You know, So we started with abandoned cart recovery just because it's it's really profitable for merchants. Like you mentioned, you know, making $500 a month from, from just recovery emails before, right? And that's the case for a lot of merchants. It's really powerful and, and drives revenue pretty clearly. So we started there, right? But the long-term vision for Jilt is we want to send every email that an e-commerce store could want to send. So that's lifecycle emails. That's post-purchase follow-ups, welcome emails, first-time purchase of thank yous, win-back emails, right? That extends to other types of e-commerce sites like subscription sites. You know, one of the next things we're working on is WooCommerce subscriptions integration so that we can send, you know, pre-renewal emails, post-cancellation winbacks, right? All sorts of emails devoted to that. And then also get into manual message sending. So newsletter type emails, you know, I have a sales announcement. Let me schedule this or send it now. Let me target a customer segment. One of the things that we started to roll out over the past week and are starting to, you know, continuing to roll out to our customer base is segmentation rules for campaigns. So we've done a lot of groundwork to expand Jilt. So kind of our land and expand was, you know, get in with the most valuable feature and then expand from there to take on the other emails that an e-commerce store should be doing for its customers. Yeah, you know what? I didn't realize that, well, 
I guess I did, but I didn't really think about it until we put a an email log tracker on one of our WordPress sites, and you start to see all the emails that are coming in and going out to customers. And I started to realize that we had a horrible hodgepodge of emails we were sending out to people. You'd have a a core WordPress email that would go out when someone registered. Maybe we'd have uh, purchase receipt from easy digital downloads. Maybe another plugin would be sending an email with a different design for something else. And then we'd have an actual newsletter that would probably go for MailChimp or Infusionsoft or something like that. And each email would look entirely different unless we really put an effort in. It would have different footer information. It would have a different approach. There's something quite tempting to having one service managing and tracking all the emails to give a unified analytics, to give a unified brand to the stuff we're sending to customers. Right. And your brand is so vital, right? So it's important that, you know, all of your communication reflects that. And especially with easy digital downloads, I think it's it's difficult because you do have some of the core WordPress emails being sent. Uh, WooCommerce takes over a little bit of that with like registration and password resets. So it's slightly better. But there's a lot of communication that comes from, from your site. And depending on what kind of business you are, you know, if you're sort of a niche like membership site or subscription site, there's even more emails coming out, right? And unifying oh, yeah. that and making it easy for people to customize them, which is also difficult, right? It's not easy to customize WooCommerce or easy digital downloads emails. Giving people the ability to do that, to automate what should be automated, and to give you know nice branded emails uh, outside of that. It's a lofty goal, right? And it takes a lot of work, and we've been working really consistently towards that. But we think it's going to be a huge value add, especially for, for WordPress-specific sites that are struggling with that. I know quite a few people who are interested in moving their WordPress plugins from an open source distributed version towards more of a SaaS. How long does it actually take to get something like jilt up and running? How long have you been at it so far? How far along are you in the process? Is it a, a process of a year, two years? Is it a, a four or five year process to get something like this standing on its feet and successful? Yeah, it depends a lot on what you're building, but definitely way more involved. Uh, and multi-year process in comparison to WordPress development. So if you think about WordPress, you get so much out of the box, right? User authentication and account management, right? There's all these things that come with WordPress that when you've been in WordPress, you take for granted. And so Jilt itself is built in Ruby on Rails. And there's a lot of gems that handle a lot of stuff for us too. But just the infrastructure behind your project, um, you know, you're managing your own database and you're you know, managing your own app hosting and you're connecting that with, you know, an API that you've built to your own integration plugins. There's a lot involved with it, and it's a huge project and much bigger than any WordPress plugin we've built, including memberships, which is which is huge. So I think that for people who are looking to take that model, first I would say make sure it's the right one, right? Because there are things that you can't do in a SaaS app. Like if I were going to try and build something like memberships, I could build parts of that as a SaaS app, but it doesn't give you the same level of control, right? But with Jilt, we felt really strongly it needed to be a SaaS. WordPress is terrible at scheduling events and sending emails, right? You shouldn't be sending emails through your own server. So we felt that this was truly the best path forward and that, you know, we needed to build it as a SaaS. And then it, it ends up being a lot more effort, but worth it in this regard because it's the right decision. Has it been, and I ask this as an entirely selfish question, one of the biggest failures I've had as an entrepreneur has been trying to launch a Ruby on Rails SaaS. It was just too much of a big learning curve for, for our team and we ran out of runway trying to get our PHP guys up to speed on Ruby. So final question for me, how difficult has it been to get WordPress experienced developers up and running in this environment? Or did you actually have to go back and hire again to get Ruby specific people for building this? 
Yeah. So we keep a pretty separate concerns there. So we had our Ruby on Rails team was doing our Shopify apps. All of our hosted apps were Ruby on Rails. So anything we were doing with Shopify was already in that. So fortunately, we had that competency. And both of our co-founders are very well versed in both. So, you know, both Justin and Max have technical backgrounds and have done both PHP and Rails development. So we do have separate teams who work very closely together. Some of our teams can do both. So our Rails team typically understands PHP and can, you know, point out things or submit small pull requests. And then likewise, our PHP team, you know, a lot of them have learned some Rails as they've gone. We don't really have people that do both, though. It's been a lot of collaboration, which is why we focused on on building that as a team competency, right? That you need to be able to work well with people and communicate effectively and work jointly on projects. So I think that that's been really cool to see and interesting to see. But, you know, really fortunate that our co-founders had the competency in both to be able to hire out separate teams who are both equally amazing to work on both sides of that. Cool. It's almost like both Ruby and PHP are a fundamental competency of the developers who have founded the company. And you keep the two teams separate. The PHP developers can focus almost exclusively on on their channels. And the Ruby team focus entirely on Ruby. There's You're not asking too much of each team to, to juggle big platforms in their heads in, on both PHP and Ruby. Yeah, it's, I think it would be really difficult, you know, and so, I mean, Justin is is a sort of freak of nature in that he can context switch between those very effectively, right? But I don't think that that's something that is really valuable to most people, right? Because our PHP developers are incredibly knowledgeable about WordPress, right? And they do that really, really well. And so when we're talking about building features, it's a, it's truly a collaboration, right? Because our Rails team is really well-versed in hosted apps and what we're doing on the app side. So, you know, when you bring those two people together, they end up coming up with solutions that are fantastic on both sides of the equation. And even if a PHP developer is contributing to something, like for example, we have an OAuth signup flow where you connect from the plugin to Jilt. And we had a PHP developer who knew, you know, enough in Rails to contribute to that project, but he was paired with someone on the Rails side still to say, okay, well, so this is something we can make better in Rails. Let's adjust this. Let's rewrite this. And we get a solution that ends up being great. And we leverage experience where we can. You know, So our PHP team has written more than two dozen payment integrations. So we're really familiar with what an ideal API looks like, right? And what it should do. And they can you know, dictate that to the Rails team and say, well, we, you know, really, we should be doing this because we've seen you know, 30 different APIs that we've worked with and let's make ours the best. So that blending of experience has been tremendous in helping us to build a product that works well on the hosted side and within its integrations that are much better, I think, than anything else out there. Well, great. Um, it's a really cool product and we've started using it on a couple of our sites as well and we wish you all the best with it. Where can people keep in touch with Skyverge, uh, Jilt and yourself? Yeah, and well, and thank you for, for using it, by the way. Uh, I, when I, I was very excited to have you come on as a customer uh, you know, and looking forward to continuing to build that together. As far as finding me, I'm on Twitter at B-E-K-A underscore Rice. R-I-C-E. Um, and then anytime you're at Skyverge or Jilt, if you submit, you know, contact requests, I usually have s- sort of at least half an eye on this. <laughs> but, you know, you keep in touch with our whole team, you know, via those channels and via our blogs at skyverge.com, you know, jilt.com and uh, jilt.com slash upsell, which is a kind of a blog focused on merchant stories. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about, you know, what top companies are doing with, with uh, their marketing strategies. Wonderful. I will put some links to that in the uh, show notes for this. And, well, I guess my final thought is I can't believe they did uh, GDPR Day on a Friday just before a holiday weekend in the US. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate you uh, coming on and taking 45 minutes to, to talk with us. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much, Stephen. I will definitely enjoy my Memorial Day weekend after, <laughs> after this sprint of a week. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Becca. Cheers. Thanks for having me.